Ukraine's president is making a surprise trip to the White House where he'll meet with President Biden and later address Congress. It's Wednesday, December 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a House committee approves the release of Donald Trump's tax returns and health experts blame China's lack of focus on vaccines and treatments for a deadly COVID surge. Especially vaccination on the elderly, stockpiling of antivirals, all relegated to like a back burner issue. Also this hour, the nightmare that unfolds when hospitals make major billing mistakes. After contacting the hospital again and again and again, that's when I started to worry, is this affecting my credit score? In sports, the Celtics play at home in the garden. Clear skies with temperatures near 40 degrees today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will meet with President Biden in Washington, D.C. today. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports the highly sensitive trip comes 300 days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is a big moment. The first time Zelensky, as we know, uh, has left Ukraine or would be leaving Ukraine since the Russian invasion started. And this has been going on since February. You can imagine the security concerns and why this had been kept so secret. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. During their visit, President Biden is expected to announce another $2 billion in U.S. military assistance for Ukraine, including for the first time the Patriot Missile Defense System. Zelensky will then head to Capitol Hill to address a joint meeting of Congress. The 6.4 magnitude earthquake that rocked parts of Northern California has left two people dead and at least a dozen others injured. Jefferson Public Radio's Eric Newman reports tens of thousands of people remain without electricity in communities across Humboldt County. During a press conference in the city of Rio Dell on Tuesday afternoon, Humboldt County Sheriff William Hansel said two people died in connection with the early morning earthquake. Their emergency happened, medical emergency happened at the moment of the earthquake. And so EMS could not get there in time and we couldn't deliver them to uh, um, the, the proper medical facility. So, so our hearts and prayers go out to their families. Rio Dell was the community most affected. Emergency personnel are evaluating home destruction and trying to fix the city's inoperable water system. There have been over 50 aftershocks since the earthquake. Tens of thousands remain without electricity in communities across the county. For NPR News, I'm Eric Newman in Ashland, Oregon. The manufacturer 3M has announced it will stop making a group of man-made chemicals linked to health issues. New Hampshire Public Radio's Mara Hapamazian reports the company is citing plans from federal regulators to place limits on the chemicals in drinking water as a factor in the decision. PFAS have been used in a wide variety of products. They're sometimes called forever chemicals because they break down very slowly. And they've contaminated water supplies across the country, including on a former Air Force base in New Hampshire where PFAS were used in firefighting foam. Andrea Amico founded a community group to advocate for people impacted by that contamination, like her family. She says stopping the production is a step in the right direction, but it falls short. I would really like to see companies like 3M take it further and pay to clean up these chemicals that aren't going to go away. 3M says they'll stop manufacturing the chemicals by the end of 2025. For NPR News, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. 
After almost two years of negotiations, the Massachusetts U.S. attorney has agreed, has reached an agreement with the state Department of Correction regarding the treatment of mentally ill prisoners. In 2020, a federal investigation found that the DOC violated prisoners' rights by not providing adequate mental health care. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The agreement calls for improved mental health care for prisoners and the creation of a new prison unit for those experiencing a mental health crisis. It also involves more training for correctional staff and having an independent monitor oversee compliance with the agreement. Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts Executive Director Liz Matos is pleased. It's a positive development uh, for sure. We're definitely going to be closely watching to see what happens. The DOC said it has cooperated with federal investigators and remains committed to the health and well-being of those in custody. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. U.S. Representative Richard Neal of Springfield is celebrating the decision to make former President Donald Trump's tax returns public. The Democrat chairs the House Ways and Means Committee, which voted to approve the move last night. Neal says the IRS failed to regularly audit Donald Trump during his presidency. He also says the IRS lacks the personnel to adequately investigate wealthy people's finances. Plain Ridge Park Casino is the last gaming company in the state to get its in-person temporary sports betting license. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission had some reservations about granting the casino a license because of its ties to barstool sports. That company is under scrutiny after an article detailed CEO Dave Portnoy's history of irresponsible gambling and the company's marketing to underage players. Commissioner, Commissioner Nakisha Skinner is worried about how Barstool's possible involvement might impact the state. You know, and I, I would I would love to give the benefit of the doubt, um, you know, but I think there needs to be a more wholesome discussion around some of the things that are troubling in what we've what we've learned about Mr. Portnoy and uh, the Barstool sports operation. The commission is granting Plain Ridge a license on the condition that they will cooperate in an investigation into Barstool's connection to the casino. The city of Boston says it has 1,300 beds available to make sure people experiencing homelessness are safe and warm this winter. Chief of Housing Sheila Dillon says the city is working with nonprofits and the state. We've added 57 emergency shelter beds earlier in the fall, an additional 85 beds in warming spaces last month. So once again, no one will be turned away. Dylan says the state has secured an additional 300 beds outside of Boston, which will relieve the pressure on the city's shelters. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bouldering Project in Union Square, offering a learn-to-climb program with instruction, rental shoes, and a one-month membership. Details at bostonboulderingproject.com. The Celtics are back in the garden tonight. They'll host the Indiana Pacers. Tip-off is at 7.30. Meanwhile, the Bruins will play at home tomorrow. They'll skate with the Winnipeg Jets. Mostly sunny skies today with a high near 40 degrees. Clouds roll in tonight and will fall below freezing to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a warm-up with temperatures in the upper 40s, but it'll also be cloudy with a slight chance of rain. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 7.07.
WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. It's been 300 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. And today, for the first time since then, President Volodymyr Zelensky is leaving his country. For an unexpected and very high-profile visit to Washington aimed at sending a message of defiance to Moscow and showing ongoing support for the billions of dollars of aid that the United States is sending to Kyiv. Joining us now is White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Hi, Asma. Hi there. So, first trip Zelensky's made outside Ukraine since the war started. What's the message he's sending with this visit and, and why now? Well, in terms of why it's happening right now, there's both a global and a domestic audience. The idea here is to show that Ukraine is doing well in the war despite the recent brutal Russian bombardments that have knocked out power. And what this White House has been saying for, you know, ages at this point is that the U.S. is willing to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But I will say, Leila, this visit also comes at a very critical moment here in Washington. Congress is wrapping up work on a big spending bill that includes new military and economic aid for Ukraine, roughly $45 billion. Mm. This is on top of the billions of dollars the U.S. has already given Ukraine. And, you know, there has been some signs of growing fatigue among the American public in certain polls. For example, a Wall Street Journal survey done just before the midterm elections found that 30 percent of respondents thought the U.S. was doing too much to help Ukraine. And most of that sentiment was coming from Republican respondents. Uh, And back in October, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy said his party would not write a, quote, blank check for Ukraine. Mm. That all being said, the White House has been insisting that there is broad bipartisan support for continuing to aid Ukraine. So in part, this visit to make sure that support continues. But it's not easy to leave Ukraine and get to Mm -hmm. D.C. What kind of security arrangements were made for President Zelensky to leave the country in the midst of war? Well, this trip came together pretty quickly. A senior administration official told reporters last night that President Biden and President Zelensky first talked about this idea of a visit about 10 days ago. I asked about the risk assessment in Zelensky coming to the U.S. right now, and this administration official told me that they consulted closely with Zelensky on the security parameters, but ultimately this was his decision to make. Uh, Zelensky has visited some dangerous areas on the front lines of the war, although I would note that you know most of those visits were generally kept secret until after he had left the front lines. Uh, This visit is far from secret. So what's the day going to look like? What should we expect to see and hear from Zelensky? He's going to spend just a, quote, few short hours on the ground from the afternoon into the evening. This trip comes at Biden's invitation, and Zelensky will begin his visit at the White House. He'll have what the official told us will be an in-depth strategic discussion with President Biden about sanctions on Russia, humanitarian aid, as well as military aid and training. The two leaders will then hold a joint press conference, and then later Zelensky will deliver an address to Congress, something that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told members would be a special focus on democracy. And before I let you go, any new details about the kind of aid, the continued help you mentioned earlier that Washington is giving Ukraine? Well, President Biden does plan to announce today that the U.S. will send Ukraine a Patriot missile battery. This is something that Ukrainians had been asking for in defending itself against Russian missiles. The U.S. plans to train Ukraine on how to use this equipment, not within the country of Ukraine, but in a third country. NPR's Asma Khan, and thanks as always. My pleasure. 
Let's go now to Richard Haas. For the last 20 years, he's led the nonpartisan Council on Foreign Relations. Richard, so apart from making this uh, in-person appeal for more military support, what do you think President Zelensky hopes to gain from this visit? Probably two things. He wants to shore up Ukraine's support uh, in the Congress, above all with the Republicans who will soon be taking over the House, more broadly with the American people. This war has not really resonated deeply, for example, in our recent midterm elections. Virtually no one was voting on the basis of the, uh, <clears throat> of the war. And then secondly, he wants to push President Biden and the administration to be more forthcoming in providing certain types of weapon systems, above all, longer range missiles and the like that can attack Russian forces anywhere in Ukraine or even in Russia. So let's take that apart for a second. The two parts of the, of the first part of your answer, when it comes to trying to appeal to the incoming Congress, how do you think he's going to do that? What do you think he's going to say, considering that Kevin McCarthy, who uh, wants to be the next House Speaker, has already said no blank check for Ukraine? Well, again, uh, I think there's a majority of Republicans who support the, the, our support for Ukraine, as do the overwhelming majority of, uh, of Democrats. He's not going to win over the, the far right, which has these odd pro-Russian uh, tendencies. I, but I think he'll wrap himself in if, everything from Churchill-like rhetoric. This is, this is very consistent with American values. I think he will argue more than anything else, he is not just fighting for Ukraine. He is fighting for the United States, for our values, for democracy, and for our security. I think that will be his argument. And so that can be wrapped up with the message for the American people, because it sounds like it's going to be one and the same. Absolutely. And the idea that, you know, I think there's a, a view in, both, in parts of both parties that somehow what we do in foreign policy is taken out of the account that ought to be dedicated to domestic challenges. And what I think Zelensky is going to try to do is say that's not the right way to look at it. What you do in the way of providing security and stability in the world is good for you Americans here at home. Why do you think the Biden administration <clears throat> has been reluctant uh, to send uh, Vladimir's, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, long-range and offensive weapons for the war? The Biden administration has been trying to thread a needle from the get-go. How do we support Ukraine? How do we support the norm that territory is not to be acquired by force, which is what Russia is all about? At the same time, how do we avoid triggering some larger conflict with Russia? And that's what this is all about. We want to give Ukraine enough to defend itself. We want to make sure Vladimir Putin does not succeed in extinguishing Ukraine's sovereignty and independence. But the Biden administration from the outset has been worried, to use President Biden's language, about starting World War III. And that's the, the balance they've been trying to achieve here. It's the reason, for example, we, are, we ourselves are not involved in the war directly, but only indirectly through arms sales. Well, President Biden, provision. though, yeah, he's he's vowed to continue to support Ukraine as long as Russia continues their war. Considering the new the new makeup of the Congress, I mean, how will he be able to deliver on that? Oh, again, I'm not worried about that. I think that uh, Vla I think you know, Vladimir Putin bet wrong in several ways. Not only have overestimating his own armed forces. But I think he underestimated Ukraine, he underestimated Europe, <clears throat> and he underestimated the United States. You know, this is not Afghanistan, whatever you thought about that. There is widespread support. So sure, there's going to be a couple of voices on both sides of the aisle uh, who are going to oppose this for whatever set of reasons. But again, I think we're, we're pretty robust in our, in our support. We're providing over a billion dollars a month in military aid as well as a billion dollars a month in economic aid. And I believe that is, I believe that is sustainable. So you mentioned Vladimir Putin, 10 months since Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, he has not scored uh, really quick or easy battlefield wins. Um, what do you think he does next? He plays for time. 
Putin basically says he can keep Russia in the war. He controls the narrative pretty much at home. Uh, uh, he's been able to live with sanctions in some ways, doing end runs around them, still selling his oil, for example, his gas, even though he lost some markets in Europe. And he basically saying, I want to break the back of Ukraine. That's why he's attacking all these civilian sites, uh, electricity sites, water sites, and so forth. He wants Europe to get cold this winter, hoping that breaks the will of Europe. He wants the United States to get tired of the war, uh, hoping these uh, isolationist tendencies here at home prevail. So Putin feels that time is his friend. He just wants to hang in there long enough until he believes the tide will turn. It's our challenge to make sure that calculation proves wrong. You know, I think with any war, we're always kind of looking to see where the motivation is for one side or the other to continue to fight. In this case, Richard, where do you think the motivation is for either side to compromise and to look for maybe some kind of peaceful resolution? I don't see it. In order for negotiations to succeed, and I've been involved in all sorts of negotiations as a former U.S. government official, you need the leadership of the various sides to be both willing and able two important characteristics, willing and able to compromise. I don't see either side as willing. Putin could compromise, I believe, if he wanted to, but he does not want Ukraine to succeed as a, as a Western-oriented, market-oriented, Slavic country. That sets an example he doesn't want to live with. He's worried he would li look weak at home. So Putin wants to hang tough. Zelensky and the Ukrainians, 85% or more, they want every square inch of their country back including Crimea, which Russia took in 2014. So at the moment, I don't think diplomats, no matter how capable, have much, if anything, to work with. Yeah, I suppose if, uh, as Vladimir Putin said, that Ukraine doesn't really exist in his eyes, I guess uh, that's not really much of a starting point. <laughs> no, that's not exactly a uh, precondition for successful diplomacy, no. Yeah. Uh, international sanctions, uh, some of the toughest in history have been put on Russia. I don't know if they've really made that much of a dent in their resolve. Does the international community have any other uh, ways or any other options that they that they at their disposal right now? Now, first, your point is exactly right. We tend to exaggerate what sanctions can accomplish. Yes, they've taken some toll on Russia's economy. But as we've seen in, in many cases, if, if governments are willing to pay a price, they'll just hang in there. And that's what's happening here. Plus, you can work around sanctions. Russia, for example, is selling a lot of uh, oil and gas to places like China and India. The only thing we could do is continue to provide economic and military support to Ukraine to basically persuade Putin that time isn't on his, his side. And even that may not work. We may ultimately have to wait for a new leadership in Russia to emerge be it by natural or unnatural causes, because I don't see any sign that Vladimir Putin is prepared to, to compromise. Richard, uh, last thing really quick. It's been 10 months. How do you think the war has reshaped the international balance? How is the world different now? What the war has done is showed the continuing relevance and strength of alliances. It showed that there still is a West in NATO against Russia, with Japan and other countries against China. That has been perhaps uh, the most positive aspect of this war. At the same time, it's showing that war itself can still happen, which is anything but positive. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Richard, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the perils of medical mistaken identity. We follow a California woman who received a huge hospital bill that was supposed to go to someone in Florida with the same name. It's 720. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. I'm Scott Tong. The James Webb Space Telescope launched last Christmas, and scientists have been blown away by the high-res images. It exceeded all expectations, and the expectations were high. Uh, But the images have been even more stunning. The data has been surprising. That and the other big science news from the year that was, next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny with temperatures rising to near 40 today. It'll be partly cloudy tonight with a low in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 50, near 60 on Friday with high winds and rain. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering Capital One Shopping, a downloadable browser extension that searches various sites for shoppers. What's in your wallet? More at CapitalOneShopping.com. And from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ECMCFoundation.org. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with kitchen products, too, featuring a curated selection of brands, including Dyson, KitchenAid, and UGG. More at BedBathAndBeyond.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Ewan Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. It's time once again for the Bill of the Month, when we look into ridiculous medical bills and what we can do about them. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is our guide, the editor-in-chief of our partner, Kaiser Health News. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Whose case do you have this time? Well, this time we have a billing error that resulted from two patients caught up in a case of mistaken identity. You see, both were named Grace Elliott, but one Grace Elliott is a young woman, a preschool teacher in California. The other is a retiree in Florida. This obvious clerical error should have been easy to fix, but instead it dragged on for months and months and months. And eventually the younger Grace Elliott got handed over to a collections agency for a shoulder surgery that she didn't have. That does not sound fun. So let's hear the story from reporter Stephanie O'Neill, who spoke with Grace Elliott and also spoke with Grace Elliott. 31-year-old Grace Elliott of San Francisco was confused this past January when she opened a hospital bill bearing her name for a shoulder replacement she'd never received from a Florida hospital she hadn't visited for nearly a decade. The whole thing causing her to wonder, What happened? (laughs) What's wrong here? I knew it wasn't my bill. Turns out the outstanding bill was for a different woman named, coincidentally, Grace Elliott. I'm 81 and I live in Venice, Florida. 
That's right. Same name, very different Grace. One who's 50 years older and lives across the country in Venice, Florida. That's the same town that younger Grace lived in with her parents for about a nanosecond a decade ago. During that time, she got sick, went to the local hospital, got a bill in the mail, and paid it in full. Grace then moved to San Francisco and never visited the Florida hospital again. So when the hospital sent a bill for somebody else's shoulder surgery to her family home in Venice, Florida, Grace wasn't concerned. I thought there must be an error, like a really simple error that should easily be fixed here. But her attempts to fix it went nowhere, despite innumerable phone calls. Eventually, the hospital compliance department got involved, and Grace thought they would finally resolve everything. And then I got more bills. The compliance department seemed to think, oh, we just put down the wrong birthday. Like, this is the right person, but the birthday's wrong. For months, the cycle spun. Grace calling, Grace explaining the hospital's mistake, and the hospital doing nothing. After contacting the hospital again and again and again, that's when I started to worry, is this affecting my credit score? That answer came when a debt collector demanded she pay for the shoulder surgery or suffer the credit consequences. Younger Grace gave them photo proof that she wasn't 81 years old. The collection agency's response? To send her a trove of private health information and personal details belonging to older Grace. A full picture of her photo ID, her driver's license, which included her birthday, her address. I could see why she was at the hospital, which I should have never been able to see. With that information, Younger Grace did something she says the hospital should have done. She found the correct Grace Elliott. So she sent her a text. When I got the text, I read it, but I did not answer her. Because she thought it was a scam. Undaunted, Younger Grace kept up her efforts, and finally the two Graces made contact. 81-year-old Grace Elliott of Venice, Florida, says she's thankful to 31-year-old Grace Elliott of San Francisco for working so hard to piece together this puzzle of mistaken identity billing, which the hospital says it believes was an isolated incident. Meanwhile, an executive at the collections agencies responded by saying it, quote, follows all state and federal rules and regulations, end quote. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie O'Neill. So that's our Bill of the Month, and let's finish the discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, because, as you just heard, there was a problem, but the health system didn't exactly fix it right away until a reporter started calling and asking questions. What happened then? Well, even then, last we checked, the collections agency still hadn't told the younger Grace that she's off the hook for the bill. So this story is not quite done at all. Well, how do people avoid getting into this situation to begin with? Well, hospitals are supposed to have safeguards in place, like asking for a photo ID, but a name mix-up is pretty common. You know, the, these two Grace Elliots had different middle initials, but this one resulted in crazy, crazy billing. And other kinds of medical mix-up can also happen, like the electronic record saying you have a medical condition or an allergy you don't have. What patients can do to try and nip these problems in the bud is checking your patient portal carefully. So many people never even look at that. Ah, and there often is that step where they say, check all your information, review your information, make sure it's correct. That's a thing to really do. It is because there, you know, there are many upsides to medical records, but one downside to electronic records is that once an error is there, it, it basically exists in perpetuity. And that was part of the problem with Grace Elliott. 
when someone sees something written down on a medical record, they believe that more than they believe a person saying, no, 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 I'm not that Grace Elliott. Well, what can the person do in that situation then? You do what Grace Elliott the Younger did. You challenge errors forcefully with documentation as she did. Take the names of the people you're speaking to and try and stop it before it gets sent to a collection agency. Because once it's at a collection agency, their goal is to collect a bill, not to say, was this medically right or wrong? And I always say, if the billing problem persists, go to your state consumer protection bureau or better business board. That will scare people. That will get them an incentive to listen to you, I suppose. Yeah, or bill of the month. <laughs> or that. Go to, go to the bill, or go to the bill of the month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, closing out a year of outrageous medical bills and unconscionable billing practices. There's a word we don't get to use that often on the radio, unconscionable. And we will resume in January. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. If you have a medical bill that just seems wrong and you can't get to the bottom of it, go to NPR's Shots blog. Tell us all about it. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, public and private sector strikes in the U.K. have paralyzed everything from the post service to the national health system. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Life of Pi at the ART. Get swept away by the award-winning story of endurance and hope. Now through January 29th, amrep.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is expected to meet with Ukraine's president today at the White House. Volodymyr Zelensky is also scheduled to address a joint meeting of Congress while in Washington. NPR's Jimena Bustillo says the trip marks Zelensky's first travel outside his country since Russian forces invaded Ukraine nearly 10 months ago. It also comes as lawmakers are preparing to vote on an omnibus spending bill that includes $44.9 billion in emergency assistance to Ukraine and NATO allies. Zelensky previously addressed Congress via video from the Ukrainian capital in March. He called on lawmakers to send additional support. The U.S. has been a strong ally of Ukraine in its war against Russia, and so far Congress has provided over $65 billion in aid. President Biden has also said he has, quote, no plans to contact Russian President Vladimir Putin about the war and has congratulated presidents of France and Ecuador for their hardline stances against Russia in the conflict. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. The pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 remain in place. The Biden administration is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to leave the restrictions in effect through Sunday. 
They'd been set to expire today. Earlier this week, Republican attorneys general in 19 states had asked the high court to intervene. This is NPR News. From WPOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Studies show housing discrimination remains a persistent problem in Massachusetts, and advocates say the state needs to do much more to stop it. WPOR's Simone Rios reports. Vicky Motanti worked as a fair housing tester in Boston, pretending to be a renter in order to expose discrimination by real estate brokers. She also worked in the city of Boston's fair housing office, and she says the city hasn't been able to eliminate the bias. These practices are so insidious and have sort of been the norm for so long. I don't know if I could say that, you know, we we figured it out, we cracked the code, because if we would have figured it out, then there would be no need for testers. Advocates want to conduct more testing and to increase penalties for agents who violate discrimination laws. The state board that licenses real estate agents says it hasn't punished a single person or firm for discrimination in recent years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. A woman is suing the Diocese of Worcester over what she says is the mishandling of a sexual assault case. The lawsuit claims the former director of St. John Food for the Poor took advantage of her and other women in vulnerable situations. A report from the diocese into the assaults found the allegations weren't warranted, but the lawsuit argues the diocese should have taken action sooner and accuses it of trying to cover up the allegations. Police say thieves are stealing checks from Blue Postal Service mailbox in Greater Boston. So far, incidents have been reported in Needham and Wellesley. Investigators believe that thieves have keys to the boxes. They're asking people to send checks and other important mail by physically going to the post office. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. The Celtics will host the Indiana Pacers tonight at the Garden. They're coming off a two-game loss against the Orlando Magic. Tonight's game begins at 7.30. Tomorrow, the Celtics take on the Winnipeg Jets. In your forecast, mostly clear skies today and in the upper 30s, a bit overcast tonight and it falls to the mid-20s. Overcast tomorrow and we warm up to the upper 40s with a slight chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now it's 27 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. The UK continues to face a rolling series of strikes in the run-up to Christmas, with both public and private sector workers walking off the job this month, often for several days. We're joined now by London-based journalist Willem Marks to hear about the impact this is having on public services, health care, and transportation across the UK. Good morning, Willem. Good morning, Leila. So what kind of workers have been striking this week? 
Well, yesterday it was nurses in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And, and that was not for the first time this month. Mm. Today it's ambulance workers, some 10,000 of them across England and Wales. And that will involve paramedics as well as personnel from call centres and control rooms just walking off the job. They've agreed they will continue to support and answer life-threatening calls, including those for cardiac arrest, but the government's been forced to draft in 750 members of the country's military to help out. Wow. Driving tests, they're all cancelled too, as examiners are striking today. And then later this week, in the days before and during the Christmas holiday, you've got rail engineers, bus drivers, airport baggage handlers, border force agents and mail workers all out too. And it's worth pointing out that all of these are one-day or targeted-day rolling strikes. Incredibly important sectors, public services. Is there an easy explanation for why there are so many strikes and across such a wide variety of sectors? Well, there's no single answer, but mm. there is a relatively simple answer that you can put forward, and that's just inflation. Yeah. You know, wages are not keeping up with the very high rates of inflation in Britain. And given the tight labour market, employees and the unions that represent them have a significant amount of leverage to demand better pay and often insist on retaining either current working conditions or improving them. On the railways, for instance, unions are saying that it's about safety and schedules. Nurses and ambulance workers also saying their systems, the national health system, is overstretched. Patients are going to continue to suffer, they say, the consequences if higher pay is not introduced. And that's mostly about encouraging better recruitment and retention. And with many of the pay offers between let's say 3 and 5% coming from either the government or employers, you compare that to inflation running at around 10%, and it's relatively easy to see why many workers feel they're being financially squeezed and have decided to take action. What role does the British government play in these kinds of industrial disputes? Well, one reason so many of these public sector workers are striking, because their pay levels have fallen substantially over the past 12 years of Conservative government in Britain, that's following the great financial crisis and the then Conservative government's push for austerity that led to major public spending cuts. Now, the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has said he's going to continue to take quite a hard line against the various unions asking for higher pay. He's concerned about inflation continuing if pay rises. But given these are the largest series of labour actions in the UK for many years, he's under increasing pressure from opinion polls, from political opponents, indeed some people within his own party, to get involved directly in negotiations to try and resolve some of these disputes, to avoid months of protracted industrial action in sectors like healthcare and transport, which are already really, really struggling, Layla, after the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. London-based journalist Villa Marks, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. China is experiencing a huge wave of COVID infections. The exact number is not known, and according to the government, only a handful of people in the entire country have died. But crematoriums and funeral homes in Beijing say they're overwhelmed. NPR's Emily Fang brings us this snapshot. Dongzhao Crematorium is one of Beijing's biggest, servicing the entire east side of the capital city. And at the start of this week, it was teeming. A line of hearses and grieving families filled the intake lot. Staff say there's a 10-day waiting list for cremations. No cars can get in. It's too crowded, one hearse driver grumbles. Another family is silent. They've lost their elderly grandfather to COVID this past weekend, they tell NPR. Yet China didn't report any deaths from this COVID surge until this week. 
Like all the people in China we interviewed for this story, this man's grandson didn't want to be named because of how sensitive the topic of COVID deaths is in China. But he tells NPR of how a week ago, his grandfather started running a fever and tested positive, but they could not find a hospital with a free bed for him. Well, yeah, it's kind of uh, crazy. Yan Zhonghuang is a senior fellow following public health at the Council on Foreign Relations. He explains how China found itself facing down a winter epidemic. Because for nearly three years, the focus was only on containing cases, but not preparing to treat them. Other measures, especially vaccination on the elderly, stockpiling of antivirals, uh, all relegated to like a back burner issue. Meaning the state poured all of its resources into containing COVID and policing infections, but very little on promoting vaccines and stocking up on medicine and antivirals. And that's why cases are exploding, even if the government won't disclose data on how bad the problem is. Data such as... The people who are hospitalized and those, the, the, the ICU bed occupancy rate. You know, so that makes it very difficult to estimate, right, the, the, the rising severe cases. Another reason why China has declared so few official deaths is because COVID-positive patients who die but who also have underlying conditions are not considered COVID deaths within hospitals, a far stricter threshold than in the U.S., but which Chinese officials defended during a Tuesday press conference. Farther up north in Beijing suburbs, the Tongzhou crematoriums incinerators are operating around the clock now. The incinerator operators refuse to answer whether there are more bodies coming in than normal. Like most funerary shops and crematoria, they've been explicitly instructed not to talk to media. China has also suspended most of its COVID testing booths, and rapid at-home tests are sold out and hard to come by. That means there's no accurate insight into exactly how far the virus has spread. And that's left bereft families without answers. This man says his 92-year-old grandmother died in the hospital over the weekend, but staff couldn't tell him what she died of. And due to pandemic regulations, he couldn't see her in her last moments. The doctor said she didn't have many COVID symptoms, but nurses told him everyone on the hospital staff had tested positive. Early on in the pandemic, the Chinese state's opaqueness sparked panic as the virus spread. Now, almost three years later, and in the midst of its biggest surge of COVID infections yet, the same public confusion and fear reigns. Emily Fang, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, we measure the impact of the ongoing international sanctions on Russia imposed since Moscow invaded Ukraine. And in our next hour, despite objections from Republicans, a Democratic-led House committee has voted to release former President Donald Trump's tax returns. In your forecast, upper 30s today under sunny skies, mid-20s tonight as it grows cloudy, upper 40s tomorrow under cloudy skies, and there's a slight 
slight chance those skies will give way to rain in the late afternoon. Right now it's 27 degrees in Boston at 743. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Now, in business news, Boston-based labor attorney Shannon Liss Reardon is filing a new lawsuit against Twitter. She's filing the suit on behalf of 100 employees who signed agreements, then lost their jobs at Twitter. The complaint accuses the company of sex discrimination, breach of contract, and illegally terminating employees who were on medical or parental leave. Liz Reardon has filed four clash action lawsuits against Twitter since Elon Musk bought the company. A Rhode Island defense contractor is paying half a million dollars to the government after it sold army wool blankets made in India to the Department of Defense. Equipment sold to the Defense Department needs to be made in the U.S. The Department of Defense says Hyman Brickle and Son said its blankets were made in the U.S. while knowing they were not. The German discount grocery store Aldi is opening a new location in Westfield. The company says the store will open on January 5th. Aldi also plans to open a location in Northampton sometime next year. It's 744. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In 2022, travel came back, but hotel workers did not. Nobody wants to work, actually. I mean, kind of, we are still surprised at where everybody are. I've been in the hotel business for a very long time, and I've never experienced this. Why hotels are now skipping room cleanings and investing in robots. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faudel. Unprecedented international sanctions have been imposed on Russia since it invaded Ukraine. Yet the war continues. So are these efforts to damage the Russian economy working? NPR's Jackie Northam reports. The Russian sanctions are wide-ranging, targeting individuals, businesses, imports, exports, and commodities. Edward Fishman led the State Department's sanctions policy after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. He says the sanctions are extremely broad in their scope, but were expected to take time to have an impact. They aren't trying to achieve a psychological change in Putin. They're not trying to make Putin wake up in the morning and decide that Ukraine was not worth the effort. What they're really trying to do is just create attrition in Russia's military industrial complex and its economy writ large. Fishman, now with Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, says the international community hit hard shortly after the invasion of Ukraine, zeroing in on Russia's banking system to cut it off from the world. In my day, the idea of imposing blocking sanctions on Sparebank, which is by far the largest bank in Russia, was unthinkable, let alone sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia. 
which I would mention is probably the largest sanctions target in modern history, and one that Putin didn't expect would actually come under sanctions. Sanctioning Russia's central bank froze almost half of its $635 billion in foreign reserves. The ruble tumbled. But Alina Rybakova, with the Institute of International Finance in Washington, says the central bank had spent years putting policies in place to defend its financial system from just this type of scenario. So this fortress Russia strategy, which we also talked about, and some people laughed about it in the beginning of the 2022 sanctions, it did prove to be at least partially effective. We were expecting much deeper contraction, myself included. Russia's economy is expected to contract this year by about 3.5% instead of growth that was expected. There would likely be a bigger drop if it wasn't for oil and gas sales, which make up about half of the government's budget. But the outlook for Russian oil and gas revenues could change soon. Putin has already cut off most of the natural gas flows to Europe, its largest customer. And there are new EU bans and a price cap on Russian oil. China and India have been on a buying spree of Russian oil, but at deeply discounted prices. Meanwhile, Russians are seeing their modern economy suffer tangible setbacks. Thousands of international companies have idled operations or pulled out of Russia completely, taking with them capital investment, technology and expertise. Imports have collapsed, which is having an impact on manufacturing in particular. Fishman points to the auto industry. Moscow has had to relax rules to allow domestic cars to be manufactured without airbags and anti-lock brakes because they can't source these components domestically and they used to buy them from Europe and the United States. Russia will also struggle to maintain its fleet of commercial aircraft and trains because of a lack of access to Western components, says Rybakova. Even in the military, Russia is dependent on the foreign produced chips, for example, and other types of technology. It needs that to continue to wage the war. Russia is trying to set up alternative supply routes from places like China and Turkey. Maria de Mertzis is a senior fellow at Bruegel, a Brussels-based economics think tank. She says all this is a drag on the country's economy. De Mertzis says it's in terrible shape, but... They will survive. They're not going to be eradicated from the world map. But it's going to be a much, much poorer country. And there are still more targets for the international community to sanction. Jackie Northam, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. I'm confused. I thought you were going to be in Somerville today. We are, Rupa. I'm actually really excited about this. Um, we are going to broadcast live from Union Square in Somerville at 11 o'clock today. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so, you know, new Green Line Extension Station there. Huge opportunities for development, but anytime there's a chance for development and growth, there's a chance to force community members out, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we're calling this a look at developing community. How do you do both? And we have a range of government officials, business officials, local business owners, residents, community organizations, and we're going to really look at the Union Square efforts to capitalize on that station and the lessons we can all learn about the both the tensions and the opportunities it creates for new jobs and new industry and housing, but also gentrification, mm -hmm. rent raising, et cetera. So many important questions. Well, I appreciate you stopping by here before you go. Oh, there. we're so excited about it. Thanks, Rupa. All right. Have a good day. You too. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Right now it's 7.50.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab with a variety of financial planning options, from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant. Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow, today. More at schwab.com plan. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. Sam Bankman-Fried and the colossal collapse of FTX. Beneath it all, there's something called the effective altruism movement. I hope we'll recover from it and people will realize that having a donor that's a bad person (laughs) who has made huge mistakes doesn't mean that it's not actually important to help people who need help. So what is effective altruism? And can it or even should it survive? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Ewan Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We've been reading some banned books. They're works that people try to get out of public schools and libraries. In our coverage, we've heard from school boards and parents, and now we're hearing from writers. Photojournalist Susan Cooklin wrote a book that is banned in 11 school districts and has been challenged or debated in more. I've always been interested in topics of social justice. I've been writing about these things for years. I've written about immigrants and teen pregnancy and teenagers on death row and human rights and prejudice. So so this was sort of a natural evolution into a need that wasn't talked about at the time. The need she perceived a decade ago was to understand young transgender people. So she found and interviewed six young people about their lives. I don't like being a girl. I gave it a run. That's one of the teens is heard in the audiobook. Another relates hearing people talking about her on the subway. Girl one, I don't know what that is. Girl two, yeah, what is that? Christina, are those girls talking about me? The result is Beyond Magenta, which the American Library Association placed on its list of the 10 most banned or challenged books in the United States. Why? Like, why would we go after a group of people who are just trying to make make a life for themselves, a comfortable life for themselves, and are not really hurting anybody. We should be clear that for some people, this is a hard topic. They're Mm -hmm. not sure what to think about it. Uh, They have conflicted feelings. They feel that they're open-minded, but they may have a tough time with this one. Was it at any point hard for you? When I first started talking to various people about whether or not I should be doing the book and what are some of the issues that needed to be addressed, I was uncomfortable when I didn't know what the sex of the person was. It just felt strange to me. And I thought, why should it feel strange to me? Would I be speaking differently to a man than to a woman? It just, it didn't sit right. And I thought, are we hardwired? to believe this. So I went on a quest to find out if indeed we were hardwired. And I found that we're not because very quickly, once I got to know people, it became totally irrelevant. They just became people to you. Yeah, people are people. And that's the point of all my books, that people are people and they do some crazy things, some negative things, some positive things. And and that's who we are. Did you feel like you were an advocate in some way, a political actor? Or just trying to get a get an important story? Well, I wanted to tell a good story, and I didn't think of myself as being political because this seemed extremely natural to me. But it turned out in the long run that it became a political issue. But when I started the story, it wasn't a political issue. It was just a story about 
a section of the LGBTQ plus community that hadn't been heard much. So you're on this list of banned and challenged books. Yes. Um, what's that like? It's kind of awful, frankly. My whole point for doing this was to start a conversation to bring humanity to the page, to to show some empathy, to to just be able to broaden ourselves. And instead, the book is being vilified because of who these people are. What are the specific complaints that people raise about the book? Um, oddly, the people are mostly complaining about things that have little to do with being transgender. So what they do is they'll pick a paragraph from the story, whether it's it's uh, bad language because kids curse, um, or whether whether it's a story of someone's life. They take it out of context, and then they complain about that, that the whole book should be banned and everything that's in it because of a paragraph here or a word there. Um, I am thinking of one case from Virginia that we were reading about in which someone correctly pointed out that there is what you could call sexual content in the book. One of your characters uh, has had a troubled life, a troubled situation, and suffered uh, sexual abuse and describes that very briefly. Um, is this the sort of thing that gets you in trouble? That is exactly what gets me in trouble. Probably if that was not in the book, something else would get me in trouble. But people took that chapter and, and that story and turned it around into something very negative and very ugly, whereas I saw it as a, an example of how someone can survive. I saw that chapter as someone who was born into a terrible environment with lots of violence and very little education and managed to become a, a hero and live a successful life and go to college. To pretend that people like this do not exist is ridiculous because we know it, they do exist. And so their voices being heard could be very helpful. Is there one of this collection of young people whose story you'd like to leave us with? Who are they and what has happened to them? I think the most important story that I, I appreciated a lot was a, a young trans woman who went to an all-boys Catholic school in the Bronx. By her senior year, she decided she was going to live her true life. She started a transition right there in school. She bucked an awful lot of bullying and teasing and stood her ground and today is a beautiful artist and creative person and living a wonderful life. Also in that chapter, which was very important to me, was, was her mother, who was very much opposed to her becoming a female, her transitioning. And her evolution from, from being frightened, scared, un, uninformed, to an absolutely adoring parent uh, is, is a beautiful story. The mother asked to be in the book. She said she wanted her point to be, be taken so that parents would, would know what's, what we're feel, they were feeling. Meaning that she wanted to be heard as having concerns and, and getting beyond them. Exactly. And getting concerned because of, of parental love. You love your child. You hear your child. You love your child. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Susan Cooklin is the author of Beyond Magenta, Transgender Teens Speak Up. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
It's on a list of books that are frequently banned or challenged. Those challenges turn out different ways. This year, for example, a parent questioned Beyond Magenta at James River High School in Virginia. School officials appointed a special committee which reviewed the book and decided it was fine. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kafar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is leaving his country for the first time since Russia invaded to meet with President Biden and address Congress in prime time. It's Wednesday, December 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Republicans are protesting a House committee's decision to release former President Donald Trump's tax returns. This committee action will set a terrible precedent that unleashes a dangerous new political weapon and overturns decades of privacy protections. Also, the lack of accountability for ongoing housing discrimination in Massachusetts. The system is structurally broken, and it needs to be fixed. And this hour, the Taliban has banned Afghan women from attending university in a dramatic curtailing of women's rights. In sports, the Celtics play at home in the garden. Clear skies with temperatures near 40 degrees today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden will meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the White House today. This will be Zelensky's first visit to the United States since Russia invaded his country nearly a year ago. NPR's Ozma Khalid reports the trip comes amid efforts on Capitol Hill to provide additional assistance to Ukraine. Congress is wrapping up work on a big spending bill that includes new military and economic aid for Ukraine, roughly $45 billion. Mm. This is on top of the billions of dollars the U.S. has already given Ukraine. And, you know, there has been some signs of growing fatigue among the American public in certain polls. Uh, For example, a Wall Street Journal survey done just before the midterm elections found that 30 percent of respondents thought the U.S. was doing too much to help Ukraine. And most of that sentiment was coming from Republican respondents. That's NPR's. Asma Khalid reporting. A House committee has voted to release several years' worth of former President Donald Trump's tax returns. NPR's Dustin Jones reports that Trump has repeatedly fought to keep his financial records private. Democrats have spent the last three and a half years fighting to get their hands on Trump's tax returns. Now that they finally have them, the committee has decided to share the former president's records with the public. Kevin Brady, the top Republican on the committee, had urged Democrats to reconsider releasing the records before moving into the executive session. If they make private information public today, it will be a regrettable stain on this committee 
and on Congress will make American politics even more divisive and disheartening. Sensitive identifying information, including names, addresses, and social security numbers, will be redacted from the documents before they're released to the public. Dustin Jones, NPR News. Millions of Americans may be forced to change their holiday travel plans as a powerful winter storm moves across the country. NPR's David Shaper reports the storm is expected to lead to road closures and ground flights at airports. The storm is bringing heavy snowfall and strong icy winds as it moves from the Pacific Northwest and mountain states into the Great Plains in the Midwest. Forecasts of whiteout conditions in some areas mean significant flight delays and cancellations are likely. Kathleen Bangs of FlightAware.com says most airlines are waiving fees to allow travelers to change plans. Reconsider what day you want to go on. Maybe reconsider the route if you have a connecting city and reconsider possibly just changing that ticket to later on in the week or even banking that ticket for later use. Bitter cold and blowing and drifting snow is expected to make driving treacherous, too. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Steamship Authority is adding a few extra round trips today and tomorrow as it prepares for bad weather later this week. It's warning travelers the forecast could impact travel to and from Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. Authority spokesman Sean Driscoll says he is almost certain ferry service will be canceled on Friday. We're taking part in daily briefings with the National Weather Service to get their uh, inputs on the forecast. So we'll be having conversations internally and then make a decision as far as if we preemptively cancel service for Friday or if we go on a trip-by-trip basis. Driscoll says it is also likely service may be canceled part of Saturday. He recommends changing your travel plans if you can. Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan is introducing legislation that aims to help ensure gender equity in college and K-12 sports. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports. Trahan says playing Division I volleyball on a scholarship gave her opportunities she would not have had otherwise. The Lowell Democrat says that's why ensuring equal access to sports through Title IX is personal to her. She points to reporting from USA Today that found colleges routinely inflate the number of female athletes, sometimes counting men who scrimmage with women's basketball teams as female players. These athletic directors and college presidents, they want the Title IX funding, but they're not willing to play by the rules to get it because at the end of the day, they view men's sports as more valuable. The bill would make athletics data more public and increase accountability for Title IX violations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. A former worker at a federal prison in Massachusetts is facing up to 10 years behind bars for hitting an inmate in the head. Seth Bourget was a correctional officer at FMC Devins Prison. He was found guilty by a jury yesterday. The U.S. attorney for Massachusetts says the man Bourget hit was handcuffed and was suffering from severe mental illness. State Representative Angelo Popolo says the MGM Springfield Casino should face consequences for submitting its sports betting application two days late. Popolo, who represents Springfield, tells Mass Live he's asking regulators to fine the casino $250,000. He wants the money to be redistributed to Springfield and surrounding towns. The State Gaming Commission approved MGM's sports betting license request earlier this week. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. It's a home game for the Celtics tonight. The team is looking for a win against the Indiana Pacers. Tip-off is at 7.30. Tomorrow, the Bruins also play at home. They host the Winnipeg Jets. In your forecast, we'll have mostly sunny skies today with a high near 40 degrees. Clouds roll in tonight and we'll fall below freezing to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a warm-up with temperatures in the upper 40s, but it'll also be cloudy with a slight chance of rain. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. The House Ways and Means Committee voted along party lines to publicly release six years of former President Donald Trump's tax returns. The committee's investigation also revealed the IRS failed to audit the former president during his first two years in office, despite a program that makes those audits mandatory. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia. He sits on the Ways and Means Committee. Good morning, Congressman. Thank you for being on the program. Good morning, Layla. Thank you very much for the invitation. So let's start with why this is important to release the former president's tax records at this point to the public. You know, this is uh, one of the things that was established back during Teapot Dome scandal, you know, 100 years ago, was that uh, there's a section 6103 in the law mm-hmm. where the, the Congress can, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee can actually request individual tax returns. And this was necessary, we believe, you know, four years ago when Chairman Neal uh, initiated the request because Donald Trump was first president since Richard Nixon not to release his tax returns, mm-hmm. despite promising to do so. And there was an enormous question about whether the IRS was following the mandatory audit procedure. And of course, what we found out is that they weren't. Why? Do you know why that happened? Well, you know, it's 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 really discouraging. There, We got six uh, different tax returns, ultimately after a three and a half year court battle. And they didn't initiate, they skipped the first two years completely. Mm. And on the third one, they only initiated the audit the day Richie Neal's letter um, from Congress was received. And even that, we discovered they put exactly one IRS agent on this hugely complex tax return. Um, so it was understaffed, under-resourced. And, and we end up, when you read the report, with mm-hmm. so many unanswered questions. Are there consequences for these audits not happening, or could there be consequences? I don't think so. I, I hope the biggest consequence is the American public realizes it makes much more sense not to starve the IRS. You know, that... Um, right now, you know, it's difficult to get a phone call answered or a letter responded to. Um, but we also find out that they, they, they aren't doing their job auditing the president's tax returns. So, and, and, of course, the basic principle here is that no one should be above the law. Now, releasing publicly tax returns has been a tradition since Nixon. And your Republican colleagues have been very critical of this party line vote, saying it's a breach of privacy. I mean, is that criticism founded? I don't think so. First of all, uh, this is uh, this particular president was one who 
who sought as much publicity as possible his entire life. Mm. Um, and, and we are, the, the returns themselves we didn't release last night because we are going to be very careful in a bipartisan way to redact any personal information, social security numbers and addresses and things like that. Uh, and the basic part, you know, the, my Republican friends yesterday kept saying, this sets a terrible precedent. Right. Well, this is exactly the precedent they used back in 2014 when they were going after the IRS. Uh, it was used with Richard Nixon back in the early 70s. And the, the notion that we're going to go after a private citizen is just silly. You know, the, Donald Trump was president of the United States, not an average private citizen. Does what the Ways and Means Committee, this investigation, does it set any precedent, new precedent, on, on what presidents should do with their tax records, with their tax returns? Well, I, we hope so. In fact, one of the interesting things yesterday, Layla, was most people on the panel, Democrats and Republicans, said, yes, let's make this the law hmm. rather than our IRS rule. Um, let's just say this is what all presidents have to do moving forward. And of course, you know that a number of states are working or have passed laws that says you can't be on the ballot in 2024 unless you release your tax returns. Why is it important to share this, to be transparent about this? Well, we just, I don't want to pick on, on President Trump particularly, but we know that he has business dealings all over the world. Um, I wasn't, as I looked through the returns, I couldn't tell how much money he owed other countries or other governments. Um, but that's relevant when you have, uh, you know, major important decisions to, to, to make and, and, a, and a person to trust that their decisions with other countries are going to be based on the national good rather than their own personal welfare. Now, during your investigation, did you have access to all the information that you needed? No. In, in fact, one of the biggest takeaways I got, I looked through all six years of returns, yeah. and, and this is a summary in, in, the, in the report, is there's a, I added up $280 million worth of unsubstantiated deductions, hmm. you know, lost carry forward, um, deductions for cost of sales when it wasn't clear that anything was even being sold, but none of the supporting documentation was there. And of course, our criticism was, boy, if you had a thorough IRS audit, you'd want to dive deep on these things. Democratic Congressman Don Beyer, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Layla. All these legal challenges could derail Donald Trump's 2024 presidential run. And as many in the Republican Party appear to be moving away from him, where does this leave him? To help answer this question, I'm joined via Skype by former Republican Congressman Francis Rooney of Florida. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. All right. So the January 6th committee voted unanimously on Monday to recommend those criminal charges against the former president. Uh, short term, long term, uh, what do you think this means for his future politically? Well, you know, I think he's like an expired asteroid. He's uh, His star is fading. Uh, after that constitutional comment, I think he lost a lot of people who said this is a bridge too far. And then the midterms, uh, where only Donald Trump could mess it up this bad for Republicans amidst inflation and a terrible economy, and we didn't gain any many seats at all, and he recruited all those bad candidates. I, I think it's time for some new leadership, and I think people in the Republican Party are starting to realize that there's people like Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, a lot of really good people out there. We don't need to be burdened by the baggage of Donald Trump. So if you think the comments about the Constitution were bad, do these charges effectively become a backbreaker? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, okay? I've, I've studied that January 6th stuff, and I don't know if what he did was legally actionable or not, but I think the committee's right to say it probably wouldn't have happened without him. So, you know, the old but-for uh, 
approximate cost uh, test, but um, I don't know if it's legal or not, but it certainly tarnishes him, I think, with most Americans. Not Maybe not his 30% base, but m the rest of the Americans. 30%, you still think he's got that 30%? He probably does. Well, down here where I live, he does, for sure. Down in Florida? South Florida, yeah. Okay. Now, in addition to the uh, January 6th attack, Trump could also face some charges for mishandling classified documents. If uh, the DOJ decides not to prosecute, though, you think that could be a, kind of a victory for him and his supporters? I'm not sure the, 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 doc the classified documents case um, will stand up. It depends on maybe what he, what he took. You know, there have been inadvertent classified document departures or takings or hidings or whatever for years. And now he took it to a new level in terms of the volume of documents, but an awful lot of classified documents are really not national security sensitive. And Sandy Berger under Clinton took real national security, highly sensitive documents and wasn't prosecuted at all, nor was Hillary Clinton for having her uh, remote server with classified documents on it. So I don't know, that one to me is weaker, maybe even the January 6th. We followed up on former Congressman Rooney's comments earlier this morning. And in fact, Sandy Berger, who was the national security advisor in the Clinton White House, was prosecuted in 2005 for removing classified materials from the National Archives. He pleaded guilty and was fined and sentenced to probation and community service. Now we'll return to our conversation. I know you said you're not a lawyer, but you, you think that Trump legally might not face many or any consequences from either either thing. It's possible for different reasons that he might not. I mean, I think that the January 6th case, uh, like you say, like the committee said, I think accurately that it wouldn't have happened without him. Now, is that proximate cause enough? I don't know. The classified would be more of nobody else has been prosecuted for that. Prosecuted for that. Why should he? Now, during an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press Now last month, uh, you said this. Let's listen. The world has moved beyond Trump, but there are a certain number of very conservative Republicans who don't seem to have that figured out yet. You mentioned the 30% that uh, that you say that Donald Trump has. Um, it seems like that number is a little bit higher. Um, why do you think so many conservative Republicans remain loyal to Donald Trump? Well, when I was campaigning, I would talk to a lot of these very hardcore Trump people, and they would tell me they feel they are the forgotten ones, the people that the culture, the diversity, the progress of our country, our role in the world has left them behind, and they're angry about it. And I think that Bannon and these guys and Miller uh, realized this and capitalized on it by getting Trump to run. And he's the kind of guy that could rev people like that up. You know, he's kind of a demagogue and that's what they're looking for. Look what's happened all over Latin America. We're getting the same thing from a lot of frustrated people. So the release of his taxes, uh, maybe no effect, if, if any at all, on his GOP followers? Probably not on his GOP followers, but I think a lot of people are going to be interested to find out uh, how much ties, how many ties to Russia he had, if it, if it shows his loans and things. I've heard some some pretty um, negative rumors that he was very indebted to Deutsche Bank and some Russians. You know, we always hear of, that being president makes that person the head of their political party. Trump's the most recent GOP president, and he's running for president again. Um, is Donald Trump? the head, still the head of the Republican Party? Well, he still has his base. And, and that's, a, that's a scary thought because I don't think he can win. If he somehow were to run, he says he's running, but I don't know about that. And he were somehow to get the nomination, I don't think he'll win. I mean, the Democrats would have to come up with somebody horrendous for him to, to, to beat him. 
Uh, and we have so many good young Republicans out there like Glenn Youngkin, like Ron DeSantis, et cetera. We need the time to move on to people like that. That's former Republican Congressman Francis Rooney. Thank you for the time. Thanks for having me on. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, studies show housing discrimination continues in Massachusetts and brokers and landlords aren't being held accountable. And later, in a dramatic crackdown on women's rights, the Taliban has banned women from attending university. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio, even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. Mostly sunny with temperatures rising to near 40 today. It'll be partly cloudy tonight with a low in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 50, near 60 on Friday with high winds and rain. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 820. Stay with 90.9 WBUR today as we await the full report from the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Plus, Elon Musk says he'll step down as CEO of Twitter. Check back throughout the day by listening listening to 90.9 visit or visit wbur.org or listen on the wbur app support for npr comes from this station and from BritBox, for lovers of British TV, offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com gifting. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Housing discrimination has long been illegal in the U.S., But advocates say it remains a stubborn, hidden problem in Massachusetts. WBUR's Simone Rios talked to some who say the state needs to do more to give everyone a fair chance to find a home. Yeah, like, I can send 
It's a weeknight in a classroom in downtown Boston, and a group of volunteers are about to learn how hard it is to spot housing discrimination. It's not often that someone will say something to the effect of, I'm not going to rent to you because you are X race. Kelly Vieira runs a program at Suffolk University to help uncover discrimination. But because landlords won't come out and admit they're biased, Vieira says they had to find another way, asking people from different backgrounds to pretend to be looking for a home and see if they're treated equally. Vieira stresses the importance of this work. Even though we're having you do this testing where you're going to be pretending to look for housing, it's really important that you don't lose sight that this is something that happens to real people. Real people are discriminated against in housing every day, unfortunately, and that's why our program exists. The results of these kinds of tests are eye-opening. One expert recalls a real estate agent telling a white tester he had two apartments for rent and could show them right away. Then the same agent told the black tester nothing was vacant. You know, it all, all of us were almost in tears, right? Because this guy had so thoroughly lied to her, right? Just naturally. And, and this is the power of testing. There's no way she would know he was lying. That's David Harris. He used to lead a Boston nonprofit that conducted similar kinds of tests before it closed a few years ago. He says testing is essential to ending segregation. People want to be able to live in safe, clean, affordable housing, to be able to work, play, worship, uh, shop. There are some communities that have those things. And, and on some level, fair housing is designed to open those communities up. But discrimination doesn't seem to be going away, despite the fact that federal laws have long banned discrimination based on factors including race, disability, and religion. A recent Suffolk study suggested that most black renters face unfair treatment. William Berman is the head of Suffolk's housing discrimination testing program. I think there has been some progress, but, you know, 71% of the time, you know, for... A black person to have some kind of discrimination is, is staggering. Berman says programs like Suffolk's can only check a small fraction of apartments available each year in Massachusetts, and more testing is needed. But even when they find clear evidence of discrimination, he says landlords and real estate brokers rarely face any consequences. The system is structurally broken and it needs to be fixed to allow enforcement agencies that have evidence to refer the evidence and have that require action. Because discrimination is usually so subtle, victims rarely have proof. And filing a claim with the Mass Commission Against Discrimination can take years. Whitney Demetrius works for the Citizens Housing and Planning Association, a Boston nonprofit that helps promote access to housing. Demetrius says the board that oversees real estate brokers could do more to reduce discrimination by cracking down on biased brokers. The board says it hasn't disciplined a single agent for discrimination in recent years. Brokers, they don't lose their licenses. Oftentimes it's not a matter of sort of changing hearts and minds, but when you affect the pocketbook, right, it's, it tends to affect change along the way. The licensing board would not agree to an interview, but in a statement, the board said it's only received two discrimination complaints in the last five years. Housing advocates say that's partly because the nonprofits that do discrimination testing aren't allowed to refer cases to the board. They've been pushing for new laws to change that. They also want the state to look for new ways to increase enforcement. 
Even the group that represents real estate owners says the state needs to sharpen penalties for landlords who flout the rules. The Greater Boston Real Estate Board's Greg Vassell compares it to getting stopped for speeding. You get a couple of speeding tickets and your insurance premium starts to go up. I would think that if you have repeat offenders that the penalties would increase. Vassell says most big property owners follow the law, but he says some smaller owners may not know all the rules, like the fact that Massachusetts is one of more than a dozen states that bar landlords from turning away people with housing vouchers. It's common to find an apartment listing that brazenly advertises no Section 8, and some landlords say that kind of discrimination should be allowed. Skip Shaloming is a landlord based in Cambridge and ran the Small Property Owners Association for decades. He says while landlords are required to accept Section 8 vouchers, they're legally allowed to turn away people because of poor credit scores or past evictions. In principle, one shouldn't discriminate against source of income, but there are practical considerations. And with the Section 8 tenant, you, you, you don't need to discriminate on the basis of source of income per se, Go make sure you're checking the background very well. Other rules are less controversial, like the ban on discriminating against people based on their race. But as long as the rules aren't enforced, housing advocates say discrimination is going to remain a problem in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. These days, it's hard to imagine life without a cell phone, but remember payphones? Mike Dank, a technical engineer from Springfield, Pennsylvania, is doing his part to bring them back from near extinction. Payphones are pieces of urban furniture. They just kind of sit there out in the world until somebody comes up and is ready to interact with them. Dank has loved old payphones since he was a teenager. Now he co-organizes Philtel, a phone collective that wants to install free payphones in Philadelphia. I think we take communication for granted these days. Most of us have cell phones in our pocket. We have access to email. We have access to other applications that allow us to get in touch with people. The first payphone went live last week at a bookstore and was very well received. We had probably a couple of dozen people actually come out for the event to witness the first call. Everybody who was there was playing with the phone pretty much all night. Dank and his friend Naveen Albert started this project last summer. We know a little bit about configuring telephone software. We could probably figure out how to take old payphones and get them uh, up to date to use in a modern setting. Yeah, they rewire circuit boards to connect to the Internet, so no coins needed. The collective is now asking for donated phones, circuit boards, phone booths, and other equipment to install more payphones throughout the city and to support people in their community. So I'm really hoping that People who have been marginalized in the city, those who might have a cell phone but they can't afford to keep up with the bill, or those in domestic violence situations who just don't have regular access to communications, I really hope that those people will be able to get the assistance they need. One payphone at a time. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, pandemic restrictions known as Title 42 remain in limbo, and that's put communities on the southern border on edge. It's 830. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to leave the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 in place through Sunday. Those limits were set to expire today. Earlier this week, Republican attorneys general in 19 states asked the high court to intervene, saying they feared a surge of migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border if those restrictions were removed. Chief Justice John Roberts asked the White House to respond by yesterday, and it did. Angela Cocherga with member station KTEP is in El Paso, where the mayor says he's been told to brace for an estimated 20,000 migrants if Title 42 is lifted. People are keenly aware of what's happening and they're following every single announcement. The news that migrants knew within minutes was that the Supreme Court decided to extend Title 42, at least for now. And that means they're in limbo again. A large group of several hundred migrants have gathered on the banks of the Rio Grande, just the sort of waiting to see what happens from the Mexican side. And the mayor of El Paso says as many as 20,000 people in Juarez are just waiting to cross the border. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to meet with President Biden today at the White House and address a joint meeting of Congress. This is Zelensky's first trip outside his country since Russian forces invaded Ukraine nearly 10 months ago. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Three people are now charged in connection to a hazing investigation that triggered the cancellation of Haverhill High School's football season. That includes two coaches who are charged with covering up the misconduct, and a player on the team is also accused of assault. All three were arraigned yesterday. Police in Haverhill say they're also pursuing hazing-related charges against five minors. Boston City Councilor Julia Mejia says she's dealing with false accusations from white supremacists of being addicted to drugs. Mejia uploaded a video on the subject to YouTube this week. In it, she says changes to her physical appearance in recent years are not the result of drug use. Instead, she claims they're the result of her issues with diabetes and high blood pressure. My doctor said that the only way to reverse my conditions was to go through the gastric bypass surgery. And I lost almost half of my body, but I reclaimed my health. Mejia is the first Afro-Latina woman to serve on Boston's city council. At least 76 Cape Codders who have experienced homelessness died this year. That's according to data compiled by a coalition of local agencies. The group is holding a memorial service tonight, the longest night of the year, to remember those who died. Edie Neesmith of the Cape Cod Council of Churches says the ceremony is meaningful to those who work with the people who passed. We say the name, the first name, of each person we are aware has died. And for many, this is the only kind of a service of remembrance of their life. Neesmith estimates about 20 to 30 more people who've experienced homelessness died this year on the Cape than in past years. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash wbur. 
The Celtics are returning home to the Garden tonight. The team takes on the Indiana Pacers at 7.30, and the Bruins will skate on home ice tomorrow. They'll host the Winnipeg Jets. In your forecast, mostly clear skies today and in the upper 30s. A bit overcast tonight, and it falls to the mid-20s. Fully overcast tomorrow, and we warm up to the upper 40s, but there's a slight chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 28 degrees in Boston at 8.34. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd, this film is rated R. And from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Communities across the southern border are on edge today, waiting to find out what will happen to the pandemic restrictions known as Title 42. Those restrictions were set to end earlier this morning after a federal judge found them unlawful, but the Supreme Court paused that ruling. Now the governor of Texas has deployed the Texas National Guard to El Paso, a city that's seen an influx of migrants in recent weeks. NPR's Joel Rose is there. Joel, what's it looking like uh, at the border? Yeah, Texas National Guard troops have deployed to the banks of the Rio Grande between El Paso and Juarez, Mexico, putting up razor wire and essentially cutting off one of the busiest crossing points for migrants trying to turn themselves in to border patrol to seek asylum. Immigrant advocates argue that it's illegal for the state to do that, but Texas Governor Greg Abbott is pushing ahead. In a letter published yesterday, he blamed the Biden administration for an influx of migrants at the border, calling it, quote, a catastrophe of your own making. All of this is happening as the administration is urging the Supreme Court to let the Title 42 restrictions end. The Justice Department acknowledged in its brief yesterday that, yes, lifting those restrictions will likely lead to a temporary increase in unlawful border crossings. But the Justice Department argues it's time for the, quote, obsolete policy to go because it's no longer needed to protect public health. The city of El Paso, that's where you're at, uh, Joel, has already declared a state of emergency. What's the situation there? Yeah, the city has been dealing with this influx of of migrants over the past few weeks, and the strain is showing. Shelters are at capacity. Hundreds of migrants have ended up sleeping on the streets in downtown. Many are even sleeping at the small airport. That's where I met Claudia Anielka Alvarado from Nicaragua and her eight-year-old daughter, Sofia, who is playing with a set of wooden blocks. (laughs) Sofia's mother, Claudia Alvarado, says she came from Nicaragua with her husband and two children to get away from political instability and violence. They've been sleeping on the floor in the airport for several days, but they don't seem that upset about it. They say volunteers at the airport have given them food and even some toys for Sofia. Mostly, they seem grateful to have a safe place to be after traveling through Mexico. Where does the family hope to get to? They're trying to get to North Carolina, where they have family. The trip was successful, thank God, Alvarado says, but the journey was very hard. And it is not over. The family is trying to get enough money from friends back home to buy plane tickets. But those tickets are expensive. This is not a big airport. It's already crowded with holiday travelers. That is why local officials would like to get some of these migrants out to different cities that have bigger airports and, you know, better transportation options. And all this, Joel, with Title 42, I mean, technically still in place. Um, What are immigration authorities doing to prepare if it does wind up lifting? 
The city of El Paso is still preparing as if that will happen. It's trying to find shelter space for up to 10,000 migrants. As many as 2,500 a day were arriving here last week. Immigration authorities say that is now dropping back to about 1,500 a day. Homeland Security officials say they've moved about 10,000 migrants out of El Paso in recent days, either by expelling them to Mexico or by moving them to other parts of the border. But the mayor of El Paso said as many as 20,000 migrants could be waiting just across the river in Juarez, Mexico. So it feels like everything could change very quickly if Title 42 is lifted. All right, that's NPR's Joel Rose in El Paso, Texas. Joel, thanks. You're welcome. On Tuesday evening, Afghanistan's Taliban made a dreaded announcement. They have banned women from receiving higher education with immediate effect. With that, the highest grade of schooling most Afghan girls can now reach is grade six, the final year of primary school. To talk about this, we have NPR's Dia Hadid on the line. She covers Afghanistan from her base in neighboring Pakistan. Hi, Dia. Good morning, Laila. So give us some context here. What has schooling for women looked like under the Taliban up until now? Right. It's actually been a hodgepodge since the Taliban seized power over a year ago. Girls can go to primary school up to uh, grade six, but they've largely been prevented from continuing on to high school. Hmm. Informally, though, some girls in distant provinces were still going and others were going to these private tuition centres that were giving them an informal high school education. And this is key. Girls could still attend some universities under very strict conditions. And now all that changed yesterday? All that changed yesterday with an edict that was issued by the Ministry of Higher Education, which said it was suspending all women from private and public higher education. This morning, security forces fanned out to some universities and they ordered female students home at gunpoint. Wow. And then we heard something else, that they also went to some of these private tuition centres where girls get an informal education and they ordered those girls home. Mm. And so what looks like is happening is that these avenues for girls to get an education beyond grade six are shutting down. And how are women and girls reacting to all this? They're devastated, including their educators like Zainab Mohammadi. She uh, runs a free of charge uh, tuition center. She's educating more than a thousand girls. Have a listen to her. Last night I didn't uh, get to sleep with you. All the girls, they called me and I promised them I I will be stay for them. The line's crackly, but she's saying she promises to stand by her students and she's waiting for the Taliban to decide if she can keep her centre open. Her students fully cover, including their faces, and they follow strict segregation rules. And, you know, and other female university students told me they were distraught, even too angry to cry. The timing, Layla, was cruel. Many of them were about to do their final exams, like Spogmai, and listen to her voice message that she sent. I was getting preparation for tomorrow's exam when my friend told me about the closure of university. I'm feeling sad and wondering that Will I be allowed to study again and go to university or not? I mean, this is all really hard to hear. In the few seconds we have left, I mean, the Taliban had promised this more open approach, a respect for fundamental human rights. And yet here we are. Can you tell us why? 
It's because the Supreme Leader of the Taliban, Habtullah Akhundzada, is an ultra-conservative and he has the final say. doesn't really matter if everyone beneath him is a moderate. He ultimately decides the shape and form of how Afghanistan is governed. NPR's Dia Hadid, thank you so much. Thank you, Leila. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, the number of mountain lions near Los Angeles is dwindling. A new wildlife crossing may help save the population. Upper 30s today under sunny skies, mid-20s tonight as it grows cloudy, upper 40s tomorrow under overcast skies, and there's a slight chance that those skies will give way to rain in the late afternoon. Upper 50s on Friday with high winds and a 100% chance of rain. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Now in business news, the Sound Museum in Brighton is closing next month. The recording studio and rehearsal space is being torn down to make way for a new lab development from California-based IQHQ. The purchase has outraged local musicians who say hundreds of performers won't have a place to rehearse with only a few weeks' notice. IQHQ tells the Boston Business Journal it purchased a new building for the musicians, but the site still needs city approval. The company is looking for a temporary rehearsal space in the meantime. Framingham-based Topo Athletic is getting bought out by Designer Shoe Warehouse. DSW says the purchase will allow it to expand its selection of athletic shoes. The terms of the deal haven't been disclosed. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, we are hitting the road, broadcasting live from Union Square in Somerville. More than a million square feet of commercial space and a thousand housing units are underway there around the new Green Line extension. And that comes with benefits and costs to residents. Developing consensus on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Martinez. Los Angeles is mourning one of its celebrities. No, not an actor or athlete, but he was definitely an influencer. 
We're talking about a famous mountain lion known as P-22. He spent the majority of his life alone wandering LA's Griffith Park adjacent to the world-famous Hollywood sign. I met up with wildlife advocate Beth Pratt in Agoura Hills near where P-22 was born in the Santa Monica Mountains. It's a remarkable story. I mean, nobody would predict that a mountain lion would march 50 miles across two of the busiest freeways through Beverly Hills, close to Hollywood Boulevard, to make a home under the, the Hollywood sign. You just wouldn't predict that, and that's what I love about wildlife. But in one of his treks this month, while already suffering from a series of health issues, P-22 was likely struck by a vehicle. The lion, believed to be 12 years old, was euthanized over the weekend. However, his legacy lives on. Pratt says P-22 has become the poster puma for the area's mountain lions who are struggling to survive. What's LA without P-22? And listen, his legacy is solid. That cat, through inspiring us, showed us what was possible. He made us more human. He made us realize, even in the second largest city in the country, that we needed a connection to wildness. What makes P-22 so special is that in order to get to Griffith Park, he had to cross two major freeways smack dab in the middle of Los Angeles. His miraculous journey has since inspired construction of the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing over busy Highway 101 running parallel to the Santa Monica Mountains. Where we're standing is a little deceiving because you're standing here like, oh, we're in nature, plenty of open space. But on that side of the hill is Agora. On that side of the hill is Calabasas where the Kardashians live. We are in the middle of immensely dense human development and population. Which is shrinking their habitat, forcing local lions to inbreed. They're also facing other threats, such as drought, wildfires, and traffic. The bridge is expected to provide those lions a safe, quiet place to cross the freeway so that they can connect with the lions who live on the other side. The number one thing you need to succeed for a successful wildlife crossing is protected space on both sides of the freeway. However, what if you lead a puma to a wildlife crossing, but they don't want to cross? Let me ask you this then, Beth, because we've been standing here a few minutes. Mm -hmm. We can't get away from the sound of the freeway and all those cars. How are the mountain lions going to approach and not hear what we're hearing? It's a really good question, and this is because of this traffic and the urban nature of this crossing. We have to mitigate for things that some other crossings don't have to, like light and sound because the animals not only have to feel good crossing it on the approach, you have to again make them feel like they're not approaching a freeway. First of all, it is going to be a vegetated sound wall on top of the crossing. A sound wall? Yeah, wow. it's beautiful. So there will be vegetation on the sides as well. This will help with sound while the animals are on the crossing so that when the animals are approaching it, the sound will be minimized as well. Pratt says the freeway has long been a genetic barrier, leading the lions into an extinction vortex. When it opens in 2025, it'll be the largest wildlife crossing in the world with the hope that from then on, no other local pumas will ever have to lead the same kind of lonely life that P-22 had. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on the Marketplace Morning Report, how the toy industry is faring this holiday season. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Scott Tong is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Scott. 
Rupa, good morning. On our show today, we're going to get an update on Afghanistan, where women are banned indefinitely from all universities. That is after a government order yesterday. And we'll hear from the U.S. southern border. Cities like El Paso are overwhelmed with migrants who've made horrific journeys from South America and Central America. And depending on how a court fight plays out here in Washington, a new surge of migrants could start just as it's getting very cold. And we'll talk about an unusual holiday tradition from Catalonia, where I guess we can we can say kids get to say a bit of a bad word, and that's all hmm. I'm going to tell you. Any traditions in your household, Rupa? I don't know, but that was a very effective tease. I'm thinking about that. It's on our show today. All right. <laughs> Have a good day. Thanks, Scott. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. In 2022, travel came back, but hotel workers did not. Nobody wants to work, actually. I mean, kind of, we are still surprised at where everybody are. I've been in the hotel business for a very long time, and I've never experienced this. Why hotels are now skipping room cleanings and investing in robots. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Mostly clear skies today with temperatures in the upper 30s. Some clouds move in tonight and temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, cloudy and upper 40s. Friday, upper 50s with high winds and rain. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 851. What's wrong with grown-ups wanting games or opposable Batman for themselves this time of year? Nothing. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio. First, Elon Musk says it'll, he will step down as CEO of Twitter if he can find someone who wants the job. He gave no time frame. This after he set up a poll on Twitter asking if he should go and the, hey, you should go, option one. Investors over at one of his other big enterprises, Tesla, are getting antsy about Musk's Twitter focus as Tesla shares slide and slide. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. And David, that poll Musk put up on Sunday got nearly 18 million votes. And yes, 58% chose option one, wanting him to step down as CEO. Of course, it wasn't a scientific poll. But after that poll closed, Musk was silent for a while. And last night, he responded via tweet saying he would resign as Twitter's chief executive after he finds someone, quote, foolish enough to take the job. Uh, When would that be? We don't know. Musk also said he would still be in charge of the software and servers teams at Twitter, even after stepping down as chief executive. So that doesn't really sound like he's ready to leave day-to-day operations to someone else entirely. Wants to run the servers? Mm -hmm. Now, this can't be exactly what the Tesla investors want to hear. Right. Uh, Tesla stock is now worth less than half what it was in late September, and it's down 65 percent for the year. Of course, in late October is when Musk completed his $44 billion purchase of Twitter and took the company private. And it's been a tumultuous period. He's laid off a majority of Twitter's workforce, including contractors who handle content moderation. He reinstated suspended accounts. He briefly suspended the accounts of a number of journalists who have reported on him. 
Advertisers have been cautious, worried about misinformation and hate speech increasing on the platform. And Musk himself has said that he's spread too thin right now. And that's where Tesla comes in. That poll he conducted was an acknowledgement that there are investors out there concerned about all the time he's spending at Twitter and not at Tesla, David. All right, Nova, thank you. Welcome to the shortest day of the year. I can't wait until tomorrow when the Almanac shows the day in New York will be just one measly second longer. The solstice seems a sticky thing. I'd called it the equinox earlier. Uh, No, Dave. Let's do the numbers. Dow futures are up 1%, 327 points. S&P futures up 8 tenths percent. NASDAQ futures up 5 tenths percent. Crude oil's up 2% this morning, 77.75 a barrel. It had gotten down to 70 last week. As the Colorado River's largest reservoirs dry down amid climate change, the seven states that draw on this crucial supply are being forced to dramatically cut water use. The end of January is the deadline now, or the federal government will impose cuts. Today, a look at one strategy, paying farmers not to farm. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has that. Agriculture accounts for about 80 percent of Colorado River water use. But the feds would rather not force that sector to make cuts, says Sarah Porter with the Kyle Center for Water Policy. They would rather avoid litigation. They would rather proceed with a consensus-supported solution. One way water managers are trying to arrive at that solution is by using federal money to pay farmers and ranchers to leave water in the river. But the rates being offered, between $100 and $400 per acre foot conserved, may not be enough to incentivize major cuts, says Kyle Rorink with the Great Basin Water Network. Water managers are asking water users to to weigh their risks. Whether potential hits to their bottom line are worse than the consequences of inaction, which climate scientists say could be dire. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. With holiday shopping about to hit that wall that is the calendar, new data show it is not just toys for tots or toys for teens, but toys for the all-grown-ups. Toy sales are up 30% since the pandemic hit, according to data from NPD Group. Marketplace's Matt Levin now on the 28-year-olds who want their games and action figures. 24-year-old Anders Winterberg spent nearly $1,000 on Legos this year. Usually he spends more. He really loves Legos. Well, there was a Lego Sonic the Hedgehog set that came out back in January and I remember like went to a New Year's Eve party. The next day I'm up in line at 7.30 to go pick it up day one. Winterberg is what's known in the Lego community as an A-fool, an adult fan of Legos. He buys some as collector's items, but he mostly just loves to play with them, like when he was a kid. And Lego is really good at marketing that nostalgia, mostly by combining Legos with other sources of nostalgia. This year we saw Lego The Office, which is probably one of the biggest like sitcoms you could go after for Lego, and that's like a huge deal for people my age. Since 2020, most of the growth in global toy sales came from teenagers and adults buying toys for themselves, according to the MPD group. That demographic has become so important to the toy industry, it has its own name. Kidults. So kids at heart, but, you know, with grown-up wallets, if you will. 
Marissa Silva is the editor-in-chief of The Toy Insider. She says toy companies have learned that if you make slightly more upscale products aimed towards adults, you can charge adult prices. Take the Lightbrite, for example. Lightbrite costs about $15 to $20, but now we have Lightbrite wall art that is designed for adult. It's 100 bucks. Toy maker Hasbro has its own division targeting adult lovers of action figures. Kwamina Crankson is senior vice president. He says adults are also looking for alternatives to playing in front of screens. There's something about the focus and where the imagination gets to play out with a tactile toy. It's a multi-generational play for Hasbro. Get the parents playing with action figures again and guess what the kids will want from Santa. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Also tracking the announcement that 16 million Wells Fargo customers will be getting refunds as ordered by federal authorities, part of a $3.7 billion settlement. Regulators found illegal fees and interest charges on car, truck, and mortgage loans. Illegal surprise overdraft fees are part of this. Wells Fargo said in a statement it's nearly completed the fixes required by the settlement. We're set to talk to the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau this morning. It'll be on demand at Marketplace Online if you miss it on the air. I'm David Brancaccio with the Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's going to be mostly sunny with upper 30s today, partly cloudy and mid-20s tonight. Overcast and upper 40s tomorrow with a slight chance of afternoon showers. Then we end the week Friday in the upper 50s with high winds and rain. It's 28 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. Sam Bankman-Fried and the colossal collapse of FTX. Beneath it all, there's something called the effective altruism movement. I hope we'll recover from it and people will realize that having a donor that's a bad person (laughs) who has made huge mistakes doesn't mean that it's not actually important to help people who need help. So what is effective altruism? And can it or even should it survive? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.